0: Pages 9, 10, and 11 this morning for our sermon outline and text. I encourage you to look with me there first on page 9. We are looking in, as we come toward Easter, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and the latter portion of it, to see the portrait of Christ that's so beautifully painted there by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah. This week, in preparation for the sermon, I was looking into a, a study Bible, a, a cross-reference Bible, and there were at least 17 references here uh, in this little passage that are echoed in the New Testament. Not always exact quotes, but the concept being very, or a phrase being used so often. You may have noticed this morning, for example, in our prayer of confession, that there was a phrase from Ephesians 2. Uh, if you that, that was woven into it. And in the same way, many of the concepts of Isaiah 49 are woven into the New Testament, arguing again for the divine authorship of the book, for no man alive then or now could have known or could be able to so interweave things uh, in such a complex and wonderful way. So now, page 9, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 16. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign the desolate inheritances. It's a desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we turn to your word, we thank you for being its wonderful author and divine guide, superintending its writing and preservation for all these years. And we pray that this morning, once again, we will be enriched by being in your presence. Help us to give attention to you. When we're out of money, when we are weary, when we have no energy left, when we feel that our effectiveness is gone, we still can hear you. And we pray today that you will enable our ears to be listening and our hearts to be open and that you will guide us by your word, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this first section is a long and, as I say, complicated one in terms of many, many themes coming together. And the study of prophecy will repay diligent effort. It's, a, it's some of the more complicated, complex portions of the Bible. It's not narrative. It doesn't read always in a flowing way like the Kings and the Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. It's filled with poetry and imagery that is repeated, as I say, in the New Testament and elsewhere in the Old. It's a wonderful, complicated fabric of themes. And here we see some of them here. Yeah, as I mentioned on page 10 of the outline, there, there is a, a wonderful panoramic promise of salvation. First of all, we see a salvation promised presently. And now the Lord says, verse 5, He who formed you in the womb to a servant to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. This may have had an application in terms of the restoration from the captivity that was about to come upon Israel. But it also has reference to what the Lord Jesus did in bringing his people to himself at the cross and what he will one day do in in the book of revelation when all nations and peoples will be gathered before him and brought back from captivity and darkness into his into his full and majestic presence secondly there will be an eventual salvation he will draw all believers from every nation we see that in verse 6 and verse 12 again as you can see and then uh, there will be an ultimate salvation verse 13 uh, the, the Lord comforts his people and, and will have compassion on his afflicted ones because, see, they will come from afar, from the north, from the west, from the, uh, from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens! Rejoice, O earth! Burst into song, O mountains! For a new day is coming when the old will pass away and the new heavens and the new earth will be here all in such a short passage of time, just in a few verses. We have a tremendous sweep across the history of the people of God. A time of restoration, time of brokenness and captivity, a wonderful eventual gathering and completion. This is what we call sometimes foreshortening among the prophets. And Isaiah brings those concepts together. But he begins by anchoring them in the one who is being described in this song of the servant. Listen to me, you islands. Verse 1, hear this, you distant lands. Before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my birth he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. We read of that in Revelation. We read of, in Ephesians 6, of the Bible being the sword of the Lord. And in the shadow of his hand he hid me. So it is in the Lord Jesus that we find these Promises to be fulfilled, and he is the one who has been sent as the Messiah to bring to pass and to fruition and to completion all the various streams of history. Okay, well enough. But a painful question comes in response to these promises. He has said he has history in his hands. He has a plan that is being carried out and will be carried out. He has a Messiah who's coming to be the fulfillment and the coagulation of these things. But, verse 14, But Zion said, my people said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. This is the response of the believing but questioning heart to say, yes, I see you control the, the the tides of history. And I know that you have all things in your hand. And I know you will work out all things in the end. And I know they are all centered and founded on Jesus Christ. But I am hurting. My circumstance is not good. The Lord Not just I'm having problems, but he assigns blame. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And this is a very common experience. It's as if he was saying, back to the outline, yes, salvation soon, salvation eventually, salvation ultimately. But what about right now? Salvation for the nations, salvation for his multi people's, but what about me? Where is the assurance that you love me? Outside of this great picture of history and uh, description of the future and, and how things will work out, where is the assurance that you love me? It is possible to live in the presence of God, but not see how it affects our lives or how we feel about life. This is the problem of Tuesday and Wednesday. We hear the affirmations of Sunday. We sing the songs of the scriptures, both old and new. We rest in the Lord's providence, and we are affirmed again and confirmed again in our convictions. But sometimes it does not reach to my own heart or to my own experience. That is to say, I don't feel loved, and we live in a very feeling-oriented time. But so did they. And that's what he's saying. The Lord has forgotten me. He may be doing wonderful things in history. And he may have a very specific plan through the raising and dying and resurrection of his Messiah. And the servant of the Lord may fulfill all of the promises of the Bible. But it seems to me that I have been set adrift. I've been forgotten. Overlooked. And maybe it's because of me, maybe I'm just not important, or maybe I'm unfaithful, or maybe we don't know what's going through Isaiah's mind. Perhaps at this moment he was himself feeling uh, overlooked because the people rejected his message, remember? They did not listen and although isaiah's a long book although he repeatedly stated the word of god they repeatedly rejected that statement and turned away he made a personal appeal to his countrymen as jeremiah did and they dismissed him as unimportant and his evaluation of that seems to be coming to expression now in verse 14 i don't feel loved Can this be surmounted? God loves me, but I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. This is highly normal. This is the experience of God's people throughout all ages and situations. If you found yourself there, or if you find yourself there now, you are swimming in the mainstream of the Christian experience. It's part of it. Richard Lovelace wrote a book on spirituality, and he says this, It's an item of faith that we are children of God, but there is plenty of experience in us against that. That is, the Bible says one thing, but my own appraisal of my life is another. So the faith that surmounts this evidence is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of stealing love and acceptance from other sources. It is actually the root of holiness. What he's saying is, if you answer this question by looking at God and asking for his love, you will find it. But so many times people say, well, okay, I've been to church, I've read the Bible, I know these things, but it's not working for me. So they look for love in all the wrong places. Too many faces. Don't get me started on country music. It's just true. Okay, I tried religion, but it didn't work. I tried Christianity, but it didn't work. And so I'm going to find something else. We try to steal love from other sources. We look for it in work. We look for it in money. We look for it in pleasure. In other words, we go back to where we were before we came to Christ, before we saw the beauty of his death and resurrection, before we were embraced by his spirit and the truth of it. Because that's what we were doing before. We were looking for love in all the wrong places. Work and money and pleasure and people and etc. Fill in the blank. How does God respond to this? What is his answer to us? This is central and, and, and it may be an insight. It may be an insight. I'm not asserting this, but I'm, I'm surmising. It may be an insight to the inner relationship between the Father and the Son. You know that he wrestled in Gethsemane. And you know that he had many opportunities for prayer, going often to lonely places to speak to his father. Some of this may be the dynamic of the son's relationship to the father when he was on the earth, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So we are looking now not only into our own experiences and our own hearts, And asking this question, but we may be also echoing it the very questions of our Savior toward His own Father. Why would you ask this of me? You formed me in the womb, you made me, you called me to be a Redeemer, but I feel forgotten, forsaken. How does He answer? Well, first of all, look at at verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she might forget, I will not forget you. He responds to the question affirmatively by by saying in the strongest possible language, I do love you. How does God deal with a despondent and despairing person? Notice there at the bottom of page 10, he does not say grow up. At least not very often. Usually this kind of response we find in the scriptures. He doesn't address volition or emotion. He doesn't say, well, you, just, you will do this, or, or you're, you're, you're just wrong to cry, you're wrong to be despondent, it's just a mistake. God allows himself to be addressed and he appeals in return to the mind, not the heart at this point. He appeals to the mind, so often that's true. Notice, he allows himself to be addressed. Now, if he is capable of everything that's listed in verses 1 through 13, then he is utterly transcendent and different than us, much, much more powerful and and overwhelmingly awesome in, in his wisdom and justice and mercy. And so, such a God as this, such it's remarkable that he allows himself to be spoken to at all. I mean, isn't it? If he really is God and really is capable of such things, holding all of history in his hands and and bringing about all the events of time and eternity, then for him to allow himself to be addressed in any terms is remarkable. But notice here... He acts and responds very tenderly. The same response happens in the Psalms. It's very common throughout the Bible. God wants to hear from you, even if you feel a bit impertinent and almost resentful. He wants to hear from you. Tell me what's on your mind. Now, he already knows anyway, but... He wants to hear. He's not put off and say, How dare you speak to me like that? Why raise these things? They're out of your hands. He doesn't respond that way. He responds with a, a, an affirming illustration, a metaphor. He says, I am like a nursing mother, but I'm also unlike a nursing mother. Let's look at this relationship between mother and child. First of all, he says, I am like a a nursing mother. Why can't a mother forget her infant? I'm going to get out of my league and go over into medicine just a little bit. I hope I got this right. But physically, a mother can't forget her infant because the prolactins kick in. And emotionally, the oxytocins kick in. She has this new baby. She can't forget that baby. She has... Physiological reminders that the child is alive apart from what she might hear with her ears or remember with her mind. Unconditionally, she responds A mother is all give and an infant is all take. The infant is helpless and starves without the attention of its parent. In this instance, the mother. It's just patently obvious that the child cannot survive without its mother. And yet it is so unaware of what's happening around it, and so unable to articulate its feelings, that it is utterly helpless. It can't defend itself. It can't even ask for things verbally. There's nothing that it can do on its own behalf. It has to all come from the mother. And so it is with our heavenly father we should see ourselves he says as if we were nursing infants very young and vulnerable very much in in a situation where we can't survive without the largesse of someone else and it is available to us it is ours it is freely given as a mother freely cares for her child so I am like a nursing mother it's in my nature to give to you He doesn't have a body, so we can't say physiologically. But just as a mother is physiologically bent toward the care of her child, so I am ontologically bent toward the care of my children. I want them to be cared for, and I will care for them. So I am like a nursing mother. I will, I will, don't, as you know, don't get between a mother and her young. I'm also not like a nursing mother. For my love is truly indestructible. Her love for her child is just a dim hint of my love for you. Now, we're not talking about an abandoned child. You know, we read sometimes of a child that's been abandoned by its mother or parents. We're talking now about a child that is kept and loved within the circle of the covenant family. Even so, my love is greater than that. He says, her love for her child is just a dim hint, echo of my love for you. Your life is ever before me. I will never forget you. It would be more likely, he says, by way of hyperbolic expression, it would be more likely for a nursing mother to forget she had a child with all in her telling her that the child was alive than it would be that I would forget you. In other words, it ain't going to happen. I'm not going to forget you. Mothers who have given up their children for adoption, they don't forget them. They're ever with them in their mind and constantly reminded in their hearts. She might forget, but I will not. The application, if the reality of this kind of love was an abiding element in my life, then what kind of a person would I be? See, the one who's forgotten is not the Lord. The one who's the irony in verse twelve is he says, "Have you forgotten me? Have you do you not remember me?" The irony is, he, Zion has forgotten; God hasn't. The one who's who's broken the covenant, so to speak, and turned away from the Lord is the human side of it. If the reality, no circumstance or tragedy can put a cork in the flow of my joy. Of my joy for you, he says. So he gives an answer to the problem. He says, Have I forgotten you? No. And let me illustrate it by saying that I'm like a nursing mother. I don't forget my child, but I'm unlike a nursing mother because it's impossible for me to forget my child. It won't happen. I love you with an indestructible love. But the pain is still there, even with this knowledge. Another passage we could turn to, Psalm 27, it says, Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So what is the cure for this pain that we feel and that our Savior surely felt in the forsakenness he experienced at Calvary? What convinces you and me of love is not talk, but action. Words are very important, but what we really must see also is action. And he's saying, I want to see action. It seems like you forgot me. Show me where you still love me. But you see, a child doesn't see the adult's sacrifices. They live in them like fish live in water. But when the child grows older... And you begin to cross the will of the child and the child begins to say you don't love me, we, we want to say you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. I was there when you were born, before you were born. I've been taking care of you all your life. And now you tell me I don't love, you don't I don't love you, or 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 worse. We want to say, you don't know what you're talking about. My sacrifices for you are invisible to you. And so are his sacrifices toward you. They are so many that we swim in the midst of his grace like a fish swims in the midst of water and doesn't even know that it's in the water. Because that's all it's ever known. If the Lord should withdraw from us, even a small portion of his kindnesses, we would immediately feel it and and cry out. And so just as a father and mother care for their children throughout the days of their lives, so has he cared for us, so much so that just as children are typically ungrateful for that care, so are we naturally ungrateful for his kindness toward us. And so to say in verse 14, you don't love me, you've forgotten me, you've overlooked me. Really, the Lord is in, f- in a strong position to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I have fed you, clothed you, cared for you over and over and over again. I have used imperfect men and women as your parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And no, you haven't had a perfect life, but I have cared for you from the very beginning. And, third bullet, his most crucial deed of love is not the one that you can see right now. The name of the servant is tattooed, engraved on the hand of the master. Branded there. Verse, for, verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, in that culture, if you were a servant, the master... His name was engraved on your hand. You belong to him in a sense you were branded like we do cattle. Say so you you belong to the rocking chair ranch or whatever. But in this case, he says, you are engraved on my hands. How could I forget you? Every time I look down, every of course he doesn't have hands. Now don't, don't get confused. But every time I take a well, I can't say take a breath either. Every time I exist. I think of you. The master's name was often engraved on the person of the servant. In this case, the servant's name is engraved on the hand of the master. I have taken your name to myself. Engraved in this instance means more than tattooed. It means deeply embedded. As with a hammer or chisel or spike. Ask Thomas about such... Engraving. Unless I believe his hand and, and see, his, see his hands inside, I will not believe, says Thomas. And so the Lord revealed them to him. This is not just talk. This is action. You have not been forsaken, although it may seem that way. He was. He was forsaken. He's the one who bore the lonely death and the misunderstanding and the hatred of the crowd and the reviling, and the spitting, and the mocking. And so we've forgotten that the most crucial deed of love is not the one that you can see right now, not the next meal that you're going to have, not the next easiest circumstance. The most crucial deed of love, not only has he cared for us as a, as a parent cares for its child all of its life, but he has done the most crucial thing, So that when they have a true spiritual need, it's already accounted for. If you have seen, final bullet, if you have seen that I did the one thing you really need, then please trust me in the things that are lesser. So often parents must say the same thing. Look, I've cared for you all your your life. I've proven my love to you. Now I'm telling you, you've got to be home by 11 o'clock. And you want to make a big deal out of that. That's a really small thing. And in the weight of what I've done for you, it it diminishes in importance, but not when you're 17. (laughs) You have to see things in perspective. So the application of these things is to comfort your hearts with the words from this servant king who went before us in this path of forsakenness and knows exactly how we feel. For he was truly forgotten and abandoned and made derelict by his Father. He was truly pushed aside. And so we see here in the dim echoes of the Old Testament the bright shining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us. Let this shape your life. Of course there are moments when we feel forsaken. Those will not end until this life ends. But in the midst of those feelings of forsakenness, tell yourself, remember now, if a mother might forget her child, but I will not forget you. And he didn't. And the one thing we most needed, not to mention the daily providences, but the one thing we most needed, he's already taken care of. This is true love. This is not forgetting. This is not overlooking. This is not dereliction of duty. This is grace. So when we ask the question, as the sermon title does, Do you really love me, God? He has given us an answer. Rejoice in it. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this good news. That we are loved, not deserving it, not even noticing it. But we are loved from beginning to end, by a Lord and Savior who himself was forsaken for us. We thank you, Lord, for that promise and that hope and that reality. Forgive us when we complain, when we feel forsaken. Thank you for listening to us when we cry out to you. And help us now in these days that come, when circumstances rise and fall, to unquestionably know that he has loved us, and that he will never, no, never, no, never forsake us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.